Live from Your Mind Productions presents On the Threshold. Episode 3, Found in Translation. When we fear memory will fail, we turn to writing, but this earns us only so little more time. The burnings of great libraries are merely the most visible catastrophic losses of written knowledge, but how many of Alexandria's hundreds of thousands of scrolls had lain dusty and unread for centuries when the flames turned them to ash? Without readers, libraries are just mausoleums for books. Even if the words are read centuries later, their meaning is lost as language mutates. It's easy enough to misunderstand a text message from a friend today, 400 years on, and Shakespeare requires a translator. A thousand years, and Beowulf is incomprehensible. However, we might try to understand the meaning of those who come before us. The past is lost to us, as we will be to those who come after us. Surely this is not the first time that the world has truly seemed like it's in the grip of madness and on the precipice of even greater catastrophe. My only hope is that in future years, listeners will have little idea what I'm speaking of, that this will just be another historical footnote, rather than another step towards a new dark age. In any case, here at the Glazer Files, I'm doing what I can to bring a little illumination and reason to the world. And now that we're actually going through files, the show's name is more than just a hackneyed X-Files reference. Since last time, I've been reading through Dr. Applegate's old studies on the lost time phenomenon. Unfortunately, she hasn't been able to get into the flash drive she found in the box yet due to password issues, but the hard copy files she was able to scan and send over have certainly been interesting. Well. Some of them have been interesting, at least. To be honest, most of them are fairly cookie-cutter, being uncreative retreads of Betty and Barney Hill's claimed experience in 1961. I get the sense that most of the study's participants were from the same post-abduction community, and Dr. Applegate confirms that this seems likely due to something she calls snowball sampling. However, there are a few standouts that don't fit the mold. 
One of these comes from a history of science professor, apparently from Dr. Applegate's university, whom we'll call Dr. Cecily Castle. Following is the transcription of what I believe was an earlier audio recording. It all started so innocently as I was researching my book about precursors to comparative anthropology. I'd been mostly reading travel narratives, Marco Polo, Ibn Battuta, and the like, at which point I learned that the university library had received a translation of Arvelesel Preta. It's somewhat infamous in certain circles, but my contention was that in the earlier sections prior to his experiments, ayahuasca-induced hallucination, and rants about what he calls the maimed angel, Cabral documents some fascinating parallels between shamanic practices in the Amazon and in West Africa, both in their respective mythos and praxis. Further, White's 1889 English translation offers some interesting additional notations about further parallels with certain obscure cults on the Indian subcontinent. Naturally, in both cases, their analyses lacks the rigors of modern methodology and are marred by implicit colonialist biases, but they're impressive ethnographies all the same. The translation was kept in the library's rare book collection. I don't know if you've been there before, but it's quite a little repository in what is essentially a climate-controlled, room-sized vault of beautiful tomes, most of which are centuries old. I've heard that the room's contents make it the most valuable square footage in the state, and I'm inclined to believe it. Due to departmental budget cuts, I didn't have many grad student assistants, so most of my days were spent teaching and grading. But I set as many evenings aside as I could to work in the vaults, taking notes on the book, writing quotations of key passages, and so forth. I've always had good relations with the librarians, and they gave me leeway to stay late into the night. On some occasions, I think I would have stayed there till morning if I hadn't started nodding off and the air conditioning began to sound like... Well, that's irrelevant. After the first week or so of my late-night readings, I started to experience the profound sensation of being watched. It always started in the reading room, but later on it would follow me into the parking lot. That night, it would follow me on the drive home. All I have from the remainder of that night is vague memories of a bright light and a smell like rotting wood that reminds me of long evenings on my grandfather's porch. I awoke in my bed with my partner the next morning. The first unusual thing I noticed was that I was in my clothes from the night before rather than my pajamas, but this was quickly overshadowed by the discovery that our clothes and sheets were slickly smeared with slimy film that smelled like marsh water. Just as strangely, I found a voicemail on my phone from my partner at 1.15am, asking when I would be home, but she hadn't remembered calling me. In fact, her memory of that night was at least as blank as my own. That's pretty much all I can tell you.
dreams? Well, since you mention it, I had several particularly vivid ones shortly thereafter. They felt distinctly as if, I don't know, as if they were not my dreams, as if I were simply a witness to the dreams of another. Though as vivid as they might have been at the time, you'll have to excuse me if the details have grown fuzzy over the course of five years. The only one I remember clearly now was filled with the salt-drenched scent of the open ocean as millions of voices called to me in an impossibly beautiful song. I wanted so dearly to sing back to them, but I couldn't find the words. Despite the statement's brevity, it's intriguing for a few reasons. First of all, with the exception of the initial sensation of being observed by an unseen watcher and a brief reference to a bright light, it doesn't fit any of the textbook formula for abduction narrative. Most obviously, Dr. Castle doesn't describe dreams or recovered memories of classic humanoid aliens like Greys. More subtly, one would have assumed that the abduction would have taken place while Dr. Castle was driving home, given that was her last memory. However, it doesn't seem that her wife was in the car at the time but she still seems to have lost her memory all the same. Finally, and I admit that it's most likely incidental, but I am a little intrigued by the presence of the book Dr. Castle was studying. She was rather underselling A Evelisseo Preta's reputation. The book is an unauthorized post-mortem compilation of the notes and journal entries of an early 18th century Brazilian plantation owner named Tiago Cabral. While Dr. Castle focused her attention on the book's earlier chapters, it is considerably more infamous for its later content, in which it documents his horrific rituals and experiments, first on livestock and then on slaves, in order to commune with and appease demons. It is said that he was so cruel to his slaves that when they finally rose up against him in 1748, even his neighboring slaveholding plantation owners refused to help him put down the rebellion. He is presumed to have perished in the fire that consumed his estate that night. A year later, looters picking over the ruins claimed to have found his notes in a fireproof safe. They sold the notes to a publisher who started a print run of them in 1750. Within two years, the Catholic Church added it to their index of forbidden books, and, with the backing of Brazilian authorities, zealously shut down the press and burned every copy they could get their hands on. But copies survived, and allegedly, for the next several decades, they would often be found in the hands of various minority religious groups that the church persecuted as cults. I have my skepticism about these reports, given the potential biases in religiously-based criminal trials, 
But in more modern times, seemingly reputable newspapers have reported the book being found in the possession of several serial murderers. Then again, so has The Catcher in the Rye, so perhaps we should be careful about reading too much into it. In 1889, a Brazilian antiquarian named Dr. Felix White completed an annotated English translation of the work, which is normally referred to as the Black Revelation, though its full, very Victorian title is A Translation and Analysis of the Black Revelation, An Introduction to and Reflections Upon the Most Significant Works of the Unstudied Science. As Dr. Castle mentions, White's commentary seems to include references to and comparisons with mystic traditions originating in India, though it's unclear if he himself ever actually went to the subcontinent, or if his supposed insights were second or third hand. The late 19th century was the height of spiritualism and of bastardized appropriations of Indian mysticism for Western charlatans to pawn off to gullible audiences seeking easy answers in the exotic, so I'm more than a little skeptical of its reliability. Despite what I assume could have been high demand in that climate, the London-based 1889 print seems to have been quite small, and as far as I can find, it never received a second printing. While few genuine copies are in circulation, the Black Revelation's infamy since then has continued to grow, with occult practitioners throughout the 20th century claiming to own a copy or have drawn inspiration from it. Unfortunately, follow-up with Dr. Castle is impossible, as she and her wife died in a hit-and-run car accident in 2014. She never did finish her own book. On the Threshold is produced and distributed by Live From Your Mind Productions under an attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. This episode was written and performed by Gregory Moss. Thank you for listening. Bedside cabinet held a handgun, loaded, first safety off. But the clawing was coming from further above, so I continued the ascent. The hum of the bathroom's lights sprang on as I approached, revealing everything in order. The cabinet's cornucopia of medication was open, displaying the cocktail of chemicals prescribed to maintain me. The shower's readout informed me of precisely when I was next to experience its warm embrace. 
Climbing further, I came to the computer room. The impenetrable jungle of wires seemed to grow daily of their own accord, tendrils creeping imperceptibly. The monitor said that I was in the midst of a scheduled upgrade, during which I was locked out. The clawing echoed from still higher and still louder. 